Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Hello, happy Tuesday, and welcome to GradCast, the official uh, radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. Thanks for joining us. My name is Yemin Chen. I'll be one of your hosts tonight, and I'm joined here with Tanya. Hello, Tanya. Hello. So we're very excited today because we have uh, Kirsten Sinar here with us, and she is just finishing off her master's this uh, soon, I believe. And she's from the Master's of Library and Information Sciences. Um, so this is, again, we haven't had someone at the master's level at, with this program, so we're super excited to learn a bit about the program as well as the research that she's doing. So welcome. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. So we're going to start right off by asking, what is this program? So tell us a little bit about it. And yeah, that's, I think that should be good. Yeah, this is like free advertisement recruitment. <laughs> there might still be time to send in applications for fall. I don't know. Winter, maybe. Uh, well, one, we're a very unique program up to including the fact that we actually do uh, rolling admissions. So we have a new court coming in in September, in January, and as well often enough in the summer term. So yeah, if, you, if I manage to sell you on the program, you're welcome any time. <laughs> Uh, so it is a bit of a strange program in that it's a professional master's program. So for one, the focus is a lot more on some of the more pragmatic or practical skills. So I've had projects where I had to write out a budget, for example. It's also course-based, so the bare minimum is to do 15 courses. Uh, those courses can sometimes just be classroom courses, like lecture style, or you can also do independent research, as I've done, and a few of my colleagues. Uh, there's also an, a co-op option, but that's above and beyond the 15 courses. You can do up to two co-ops, and everyone I've talked to has really enjoyed the co-op experience. It's great to have it on CV and just really put your learning into practice. So, as, uh, so based on the information science piece, so what exactly is information science? That is a big question. <laughs> uh, so... It's kind of interesting and a bit of a con uh, controversy actually nowadays that a lot of schools are shifting to the focus on information studies and information science and removing the librarian content out of there, or at least not focusing on it, which uh, some librarians take issue with. Uh, you can understand information science as being a bit more of the quantitative interpretation would be my understanding. So looking a lot more at metadata, databases, uh, the kind of bits and bytes of how information works and how it's accessed uh, and the ethics around that. Whereas I think... And again, this is a very rough interpretation. The librarian side gets more into you, the management, the people, the kind of more um, functional space operating side of things. And of course, it's not a clear distinction. There's a lot of overlap, but that, that's what I've kind of seen in the different descriptions and programs. I just wanted to toss in uh, in the interest <laughs> of disclosure. I, I am also a graduate of this very program from... Cool. A very long time ago. Do you want to reveal the? Well, I, I don't even remember exactly. My picture's on the wall, though. I mean, if you guys want to go looking for that. I, I just remember very vividly when, uh, before I was applying, well, when I was applying to get into the master's program, I was doing some tutoring at the time, and one of my 12-year-old students asked me, well, told me, but I thought all librarians were women. <laughs> um, so, Yeah. I don't know if uh, things have changed too much <laughs> since then. I think it's still about 80% women in the field and in the program. Uh, it, it's shifting, but slowly. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned there's also, beyond being just course-based, there's the opportunity to take uh, individual sort of guided research um, courses. <laughs> and you're here to talk to us a bit about something you've done with this? 
Uh, that's my understanding, yes. Awesome. <laughs> okay, Kristen, can you tell me tell us a little bit more about what you did with this guided research? Uh, certainly. Uh, so I had the opportunity to work with Paulette Rothbauer and Sarah Roberts on an, a guided study. So it's not a lot of original research, but more of a literature review and kind of an assessment. My personal focus was on policy documentation for online communities, looking kind of at how they overlap, how they inter- uh, work together, how they work with librarian ethics, and really just uh, the impact that these policy documents can have on a community. So I have two questions. First one, what would be an online community? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I have yeah, all the big all questions today. No, no, and it, it's, it's like any community, it's a bit of a nebulous concept. I mean, it's similar, I'd say, to discussing, again, community more generally or culture. Uh, so it's defined, I would define it roughly as a, an interface or an online hosting system where you engage with other individuals that have some sort of trait in common. So would it be the actual, so for example, Twitter is an online community yes. versus a different online community would be another social media outlet like Facebook. Or- yeah, a lot of my focus was on social media. Uh, I actually looked at seven communities, 4chan, Infinity Chan, Imager, Instagram, Tumblr, Twitter, and Reddit. So those are the sort of communities that I'm looking at. And then my second part of my question was, uh, you said you were looking at library ethics. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Certainly. So a lot of library ethics are usually refer back to the American Library Association's definition of ethics. Librarianship, like any profession, has a certain set of professional standards. Uh, so this includes things like uh, freedom, freedom of information, access to information, maintaining a distinction between your professional identity and your uh, personal biases, though that one's always a little tricky. So looking at how this sort of influences community development, uh, a big part of why I was looking at online communities was to use them as a case study for communities that we try to build in our own like physical spaces. And that's, I think very much a focus in a lot of libraries nowadays, specifically in public libraries, of how do we encourage uh, healthy and active participation mm-hmm. among our community members. Okay, well, that was going to be my question. Like, what do library ethics have to do with these online communities? And I guess you've anticipated my question. So I'm going to uh, switch it around a little bit. And could you tell us more about why you pick these communities and tell us a bit more about uh, these websites, these platforms, these whatever they are. (laughs) Certainly. uh, I'll certainly try. It's a lot to get through. Uh, So my selection was really more gut instinct than any sort of academic rigor uh, for at least six of the communities. I just thought of things that we've discussed in class that seem to have a lot of weight in modern participation and engagement. Twitter is the prime example of that. I mean, everyone's using it as a professional, well, not everyone. A lot of people are using it as a professional platform nowadays. Libraries have Twitter accounts. uh, And it's increasingly the way that people are engaging with either their friends or their professional colleagues. The one exception to that rule was Infinity Chan. I specifically selected it based on the sort of philosophical underpinnings. Uh, It is probably the definitive free speech platform online. Uh, so, for example, for as far as its policy documents go, or at least its rules, it has one rule. That rule is do not post anything that is illegal in the United States. <laughs> uh, compared to a lot of these other sites that have really detailed advertising policies or just uh, Reddit has an entire page about Reddit. Infinity uh, Chan stood out as an example case. I feel like I'm missing the second half of a question. I've... Okay, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone knows what Twitter is at this point, and probably a lot of our listeners have heard of Reddit. Um, But there's a lot of difference in sort of how these platforms are uh, are set up, right? So um, Twitter has a bunch of 
sort of profiles with tweets and people follow <laughs> them and tweet back and forth and you can read them and whatever, things like that. Um, yeah, you can tell I use this a lot. Um, <laughs> and I mean, did you look at Facebook? I'm sorry. I, I actually decided not to. Okay. I just felt that the amount of information and study already done on Facebook was ample enough and I couldn't necessarily add useful information to the that corpora. Right. So, but the other sites you looked mm-hmm. at, things like, did you say Tumblr? Yes. And so on, yeah, Instagram. Mm-hmm. They, sort of interaction involvement and participation in those places look very different, right? Could you maybe talk a little bit about the structure for of sure these sites yes definitely um i think the easiest way that i can broach that topic is to look at the uh what i've termed organizational locus of each of the sites uh so i grouped these websites into three main organization schemas uh some of them are organized by user that is the user decides what they see uh who they follow uh so that would be something like facebook or Twitter, where you choose what you see in most cases, and it's organized around you, the user. Uh, Another model was theme, so that would be more Reddit or 4chan, where if you want to post something about sports, you go to the sports board and you post your sports thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I almost detracted. I'll get back on. (laughs) The third one would be um, by merit, so that would be... Again, Reddit, also more strictly Imgur, where people vote on things. The things that are voted on get to the main page, and that's what you see. You see what's most popular um, or what has most merit associated with it, depending on how people are voting. None of these are really strict guidelines for how these uh, places are organized. Reddit is a prime example of that. Although everything is posted to thematic boards, it is then also displayed on the front page of the internet, uh, where everything that's the most popular on certain boards gets amalgamated there. There's even a bit of a u- user bias there and user organizational schema in that people can choose which boards are, uh, posts are retrieved from in order to display on their front page. So every time I've been on our radio show. I always am the one who asks this question, so I'm going to ask it again. So if we were going to talk methodology, exactly what did you do to gather your results and your data? This was a bit of an interesting uh, research project for that because I originally was going to focus on word occurrence analysis, but I there's so few... Uh, computers on campus that actually use in vivo. So I did not set it upside. Uh, so that's something I'm going to be following up on the summer. More generally, um, I really enjoy with this project that I have a lot of space to run with it. So it was a lot of exploratory stuff. Basically, I read a bunch of policy documents. I read some literature and just had fun with the topic, seeing kind of what revealed itself. And in future, I'm hoping to do more of the word occurrence analysis and more of the quantitative side of things. Okay, fair. Okay, so, you know, um, what came out of this analysis? How did you analyze it and what did you find? So a lot of it was just reading, which was really fun uh, until I got into the advertiser policies. Uh, And some of it was stuff that I was expecting to find. Uh, Some of it kind of threw me for a loop. Uh, One of the main things that I noticed was a definite American bias, which um, makes a lot of sense considering most of these sites are hosted or managed in the States. But when you look at things like what's considered legal, what's considered proper, especially when you get into a lot of things like uh, sexual content and how that's interpreted, either in advertising or naturally produced content, you notice a definite bias in what's deemed allowed or encouraged. Uh, There's also things like, uh, I found the language usage very interesting. Uh, I come from a political science and philosophy background, so I was expecting everything to be sort of deontological in its basis of rule-based ethics, here's what you do, here's the duty, here's the obligation. And a lot of those were specifically negative duties, so they were things not to do. Uh, I found it really fascinating even, I think it's on 
Imgur, they have a list of stuff to do, but it mostly describes how to report things when people do stuff they're not supposed to do, right? <laughs> uh, and the rest is all stuff that you're not supposed to do on the site. Uh, what? So basically it was all thou shalt not and then list a bunch of commandments. Yeah, definitely. And it, it was really interesting what was listed as thou shalt not, uh, particularly in cases that I found uh, they would already have said, don't do stuff that's illegal, but then they would dedicate a separate section to talk about don't po- post sexually explicit depictions to minors, uh, don't post things that are sexually explicit that you don't have permission to share. And in my understanding, both those things are already illegal, <laughs> but uh, especially with the image boards, there was a definite focus on emphasizing those aspects mm-hmm. and... It was interesting, too, going through seeing how sometimes the descriptions were very clear as in what you wouldn't be allowed to do, and other times it was really wishy-washy and open to interpretation, Uh, so I don't think they really managed the clarity of expectations that they were hoping to. So um, going back a little bit to your program, uh, what... I know you're planning on doing a PhD. Um, so if for students who are coming out of the master's programs, what are a lot of the goals that they strive for? Do they continue on to research projects, something like what you're doing now? Um, what, what, what happens? It's really interesting for that in that the librarian program really opens up a lot of different opportunities and a variety of options. We have archivists. We have people who are going to incorporate. Uh, we have people going to public libraries, people who might just become researchers. The list goes on and on. And of course, the expectations in each of these jobs are very d- different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are some people who will go and become a public librarian, organize programming for children, and maybe never do more original research. And that's because that's what they want to do, right? Right. Whereas uh, compared to like an academic librarian position where much like a professor, there's actually a research component in, uh, embedded in your job. And sometimes they're even allowed like sabbatical sort of opportunities, very similar to a professorship, so that they are doing this sort of original research. That's really interesting to know because I think a lot of students might not know that the librarians that they interact with maybe not mm-hmm. as often as they may have in public school or elementary school, they have a research element to the work that they do. Um, So do you know any examples of other research projects? Would it be similar to something that you've done or? I can't call anything to mind. I I know there's, actually maybe Yemen can help me out with this. I'm trying to think of any examples. Well, in our own faculty, we have our graduate research uh, resource center, which is (laughs) sort of our faculty um, library. And it's um, working with us, our pretty much all um, students in our program. And one thing that our head librarian there helps um, everyone develop is to start their own sort of research projects on the side as they're working there. And from what I remember, um, we've got projects there involving um, things like copyright, things like uh, access to digital materials, things like... um, sort of service provision to our students, to our staff. Uh, A lot of these things that, I mean, I sort of think about when I think about libraries, but uh, maybe not at the forefront of other people's sort of thoughts. Definitely. And uh, to jump back and kind of wax on my own bias here, too, uh, I did do one presentation with a few colleagues earlier on that talked about the prevalence of women in library sciences and how that impacts how people interpret the job. So a lot of these things Mm -hmm. that we're doing, people don't necessarily know that librarians have a graduate degree. People don't necessarily know the extent of research and management and really decision-making power that librarians have. And some people are postulating that that's because it's a gendered profession. Mm -hmm. 
And the sad thing is, you know, I think everybody, especially on our campus, has definitely utilized the library, whether that be for study space, you know, as an undergraduate student, Weldon is a second home, um, or as, you know, the computer systems that we have available, all of the research services that Western provides. Um, so I don't think people realize the amount of access or how much they have accessed these resources on campus and what work goes behind it. So thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> I get so annoyed anytime I talk to friends who are like, oh, I'd never use the library. I just use the online databases and don't put together that that is something that's under the purview of the library. And if I could just throw another jab at my favorite target, our uh, esteemed University president, uh, Dr. Chakma. Again, not never a friend of the library. show at this point. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we should invite him on, you know? Uh, on these I days. don't know if he'd say yes anymore. Anymore. <laughs> anymore. There was a, anymore. What's it called? If he listened to most of our episodes, he probably wouldn't come on. <laughs> this is coming from a place of love and respect. But he did say one time that he'd never use the libraries. He just gets all his paper, all his research, you know, from the internet. Again, you know, <laughs> not sort of appreciating that those aren't necessarily all free, especially in our you know current publishing climate. That mm-hmm. uh, the reason why libraries have you know millions of dollars in budget is because access to these materials, these you know research journals, these books, these databases that we all depend on pretty much every day, uh, costs millions and millions of dollars. And again, the publishers charge as much as they can. So because you've opened that can of worms, I'm just going to keep going with it. Um, So a lot of people say that as, you know, social media is on the rise, as the Internet is being used more, that the libraries are losing momentum. Now, with what Yemen just shared and what you just shared, um, it's something for our listeners to know that even those articles you're accessing online, there is librarian work going behind it. There's library work still there, regardless of it being online. So can you maybe comment on the comments that are made about, you know, with the change in media yeah. The best comment I can think to make here is actually to quote my dad that uh, modern society is information rich and knowledge poor. One of my favorite things <laughs> ever since I've come to library school is to find the questions that Google can't answer for me. Uh, and whether it's because I don't know the syntax well enough or how I've like formulated my question or just because it's more contextual rather than keyword in context, uh, just there is so much that a librarian can offer to the research process, whether it's helping you assess materials, whether it's making sure that the materials are curated in the, originally, uh, whether it's looking at how we're accessing this information. You know, um, Recently, there was a controversy in the states where Library of Congress was proposing changing the official key term of illegal aliens to, I'm trying to remember what they were, uh, I can't remember the exact term, but they got shot down by Senate. And meanwhile, they were trying to choose a word that was, more modern, and something that people would actually be searching more often. I believe the term was undocumented migrant. Thank you. Right. Even then, I mean, people may not realize this, but library classifications are something that is uh, that are hotly debated mm-hmm. within the field, uh, partly because a lot of these were written up, formalized in decades past, where uh, some of this terminology, some of this um, sort of grouping can be very problematic. Yeah, I do recall that um, I believe like any country, like uh, f- let's take for example Estonia, <laughs> uh, any books related to Estonia are still under the br- the blanket of, quote, Soviet Union and, so- <laughs> and former Soviet states. And it's, it's just like, uh, and, and part of what's so fascinating about so much of this is you're not going to know it has an impact until you're someone who it impacts. So, so much of this is seamless, right? Because specifically librarians and 
other professionals are putting time in so that you can access the system in a way that makes sense to you. But if you're one of the people who are classified under the Soviet Union still, that's going to mean something to you, right? Because that's how people are talking about you and your experience and how they box you in. As in, like, the facts that you shared, not that, not that particular. <laughs> awesome. Sorry, we're live, so can't even correct that. Um, Gradcast apologizes officially to the nation of Estonia. No, that's not what I meant. But, okay. <laughs> um, so, going back then, uh, can you maybe share with us kind of what, what do you love about this program? What has it given you? If, I, if you could provide us with kind of just one-liner, two-liner, whatever you can come up with. Sell, sell, sell. <laughs> uh, the first thing that comes to mind is... Um, I really like the ability I've had to run with topics. Uh, my research study is a prime example of that. I sort of knocked on Paulette's day, uh, door one day. I said, I kind of want to do this. Who can I talk to? How do I make this happen? And she just let me run with it. And she was great at providing guidance when I needed guidance, but she just let me explore. There are a few people at FIMS that are just really intent on uh, working with half-baked ideas. And I don't think that's unique to FIMS, but I think it's encouraged at FIMS more than it is other places. Uh, beyond that, it's... I really like how librarianship melds people and information. Just, I find people fascinating. It's cool to be able to work with them and talk with them and solve their problems and see what they're looking at. And just mixing that with like the really just functional day-to-day. Obviously, I'm looking at online community policy documents. I'm a bit of a policy dweeb. Uh, and the fact that I can do that while also like having an impact on the world around me, that's nice. Amazing. Okay, so, I mean, what, uh, what drew you? to this field in the first place, if you still remember that. I do. Uh, so the official story of how I got turned on to library sciences is the webcomic Questionable Content came out with a t-shirt that says, she blinded me with library science. One of my friends cracked the joke of, if you ever go into library sciences, I'll buy you that t-shirt. <sighs> and I and got me thinking about it. I was like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, and the t-shirt? I do now, actually. <laughs> uh so the strange thing is I actually didn't originally commit to it. It's, you know, kind of was an idea milling about. Before this, I got into technical writing, worked at that at a, for a year, did that as in a college program at Algonquin. But what I really liked about technical writing is all the information ethics. And so the fact that I've been able to carry that on through to library sciences and do more original research or starting to do original research on that has been really satisfying. And just kind of seeing that trend as it's I finally figured out what I wanted to do. So I mentioned earlier that you're moving on to the PhD program. So what does that entail when you move after the master's? Hopefully not much. Uh, (laughs) One of the nice things is that I already know the faculty. Uh, To refer back to the previous controversy about the library and library sciences, if I want my PhD to be in library and information sciences and not information studies, this is the only place in Canada where I can do that. And that matters to me, right? Uh, so, and I've also like I've been known, known that I want to do this for about a year, so I've been able to do a few bits of research that I think will help me in future. The fact that I did a research study so that I can figure out how to manage my time that way. Uh, I think it'll be a bit of a shift because we do mostly course-based research. Like I said, it's a bit of a weird program, so it's a little intimidating going to the PhD. But the community here seems to be willing to uh, work with me, so hopefully it'll work out. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to throw in this dreaded question that you may encounter um, more and more often as you start your program this fall. So you're looking into information ethics, community ethics, and all that sort of thing. Can you tell us why does that matter? 
I mean, the the kind of pop answer, I think, is that increasingly as our communications are moderated in online spaces, it becomes more uh, important how that information is mediated or shared. Uh, One of the prime examples I can think of is Facebook for the longest time only had a select few gender options. And, you know, in a general conversation, you can just answer that question of, you know, how do you identify any way you want. As soon as you're in an online environment, you're boxed in by the infrastructure in a way that is a lot harder to breach and a lot harder to corrupt. So what fascinates me about online communities is this is the world I grew up in. Like, I hate to be just the millennial who cares about millennial issues because I'm a digital native, whatever that means. But this is increasingly how we talk to one another. And, uh, like, I don't want to be a naysayer and I don't also want to be, like, a technophile. And depending on the day, I kind of wax extremes on that end. But I think this is important to talk about, like, how do we talk to one another and... What matters to us when we share our stories this way? And especially as communication is increasing over these platforms, you see how do we talk to one another? That's where we talk to one another. And we've created um, online identities as well. And um, actually, just very recently, I went to a presentation where um, I'm in my PhD right now. And they said, you know, you as a PhD, you need to create an online identity. (laughs) And I was just like, what does that even mean? So I completely agree that there should be, you know, some regulation, something, some security some support around that which is what you're discussing definitely and especially as a increasingly like just a throwaway comment like you look at a case like rv elliott just looking at you know online engagement matters and it's we always uh we keep on treating it as if it's somehow separate from our physical space experience but this is part of our lives this is how we explore ourselves this is how we test out our identities his you know let's make a space where we can make mistakes mm-hmm. right and I mean, it's important, I think, to appreciate the role of these structures and systems and how they define the ways we can act and interact and communicate with and relate to other people. If I, you know, bring back another library example here, (laughs) um, people may not know this, but in the Dewey Decimal System, there is a special, you know, category for religions. Uh, Almost the entire category, I believe it's 200s? Anyway, something like that um, <laughs> has to do with subjects and topics in Christianity. Um, so, if you're not familiar with the Dewey Decimal System, it's you know three numbers, say two hundred, followed <laughs> by a decimal, followed by other subcategories. Almost all the two hundreds are to do with Christianity, and that means it covers a whole lot of space. All the other world religions are shoved into something like. 290s. So about 10% of those numbers in that entire category are other, essentially. <laughs> you know, religion's not Christianity. I believe Islam is not even its own um, pre decimal digit, it's somewhere past the decimal. So, I mean, we're talking about Estonia, we're talking about former Soviet republics. These are things that, again, affect how you see yourself in the structure, in the system, in the society. If, for example, you're a Muslim and you go to the library and find that you're only represented just like seven digits deep, whereas other people are right at the very top, you know, maybe that means something. Yeah? Exactly. Uh, all right, Chris, sorry. I, I don't know. I, we don't have enough time for you to get a reaction to that. Uh, but <laughs> real quick, could you say uh, if someone wanted to find out your online presence and follow the research you're doing, if you could just Give yourself a shout-out out there. Oh, man, I've never had to do that. That's exciting. Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Kirsten. Blah. 
Yeah, Kirsten at, uh, ASDF on Twitter. That's Kirsten with YN. Uh, and I do have a blog where I try to talk about cool stuff I'm doing in my courses. That's kirstensenor.wordpress.com. Uh, it's a little neglected, but I do cool stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I think we learned so much in this talk. We went from talking about history, Dewey Decimal System, uh, the library, and everything else. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Sorry of course. That. Come on, Gradcast. Uh, if you want to come on Gradcast yourself, gradcastradio at gmail.com. Have a good one, everybody. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.